Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. The Asset tells the story of Donald Trump and Russia. It's about the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of the President of the United States. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 5th. Today, a secret recording reveals skepticism from the Secretary of State, the human cost of cheap cocoa, and a gender gap among lab rats. Uh, Let's start with, who are you? What do you do? I'm John Hudson. I'm a national security reporter with The Washington Post. Thanks. Uh, uh, Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thanks for having me here. I I have some prepared... So tell me the story of how you got this tape, to the extent that you can tell us. I really want to have a conversation. I want to get to see some friends, too, as well. My search for the audio from this meeting first began when I saw that the Secretary Pompeo was going to be meeting with a number of groups last week that were closed press, that were off the record, that were not going to be shared with the media. This was a meeting of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations who advocate on behalf of issues of concern to the Jewish community. So Pompeo was planning on meeting them and discussing a range of issues, but specifically the upcoming release of Jared Kushner's long-awaited Middle East peace plan. But the actions that we've taken will turn out to be historically important for each of all, each of the two countries, for Israel and for the United States. So this, this is definitely a guerrilla piece of audio recording. You can tell that it's either in somebody's pocket or it's concealed. There's some ruffling that you can hear during the recording. And it's interesting because as the questions got increasingly sensitive on important geopolitical issues, Secretary Pompeo says, mm, you know, I'm not sure if I want to answer that. Someone's probably got an audio recording. Somebody's probably got a tape recorder on, so I won't say. Anyway, they'd prefer it to be more quiet. You can even hear a Jewish leader in the group saying, Speaking of tape recorder, I want to emphasize this entire meeting is off the record. So i.e. nobody better share anything that's being shared in this room. And then someone did. And then someone did. I really want to have a conversation with you this afternoon about the work that we're doing at the State Department, the work that the administration is doing. So one of the things that Secretary Pompeo touched on during this meeting was Venezuela. Maybe just to start off with, give us a little bit of context about what actually is happening in Venezuela right now And then what did Pompeo say about it? So to put this in context, the momentum to oust President Maduro has begun to stall somewhat. And we have countries that initially supported the Venezuelan opposition begin to look for different alternative diplomatic solutions to this crisis. It's a difficult moment. But so far, the United States has been resolute in keeping a strong rhetorical line that the Venezuelan opposition is strong. The Venezuelan opposition is united. 
And so these remarks that Secretary Pompeo made that, in fact, it's actually quite divided and keeping it united has been devilishly difficult, really strike a, a really different tone than we have heard in public. This has been our conundrum, which is to keep the opposition united has proven devilishly difficult, not just that has been public for these last months, uh, but since the day I became CIA director. This was something that was at the center of what President Trump was trying to do. These were seen as some of the most unvarnished and candid remarks that we've ever heard from a U.S. official acknowledging just how difficult it is not only to oust Maduro, but to form a democratic and united opposition that would be able to lead in the event that Maduro is ousted. Uh, We've been working and it took us this long to get to where we are today, where you have a leader, tenuous as it may be, who could have been arrested while we're sitting in this room. Uh, who has managed to cobble together the opposition. The moment Maduro leaves, everybody's going to raise their hand and says, take me, I'm the next president of Venezuela. There'll be 40-plus people who believe they're the rightful heir to Maduro. So I don't know the when. They do know modality. Maduro's departure is important and necessary, but completely insufficient. So in public, the U.S. is saying that There is a strong, united, legitimate alternative to Maduro in Venezuela that is ready to take charge and take leadership there. But that what Pompeo is saying privately is that in practice, it's actually more complicated than that. And finding someone to replace Maduro, that that there are a lot of complications. Yeah. And he says it's not just been publicly what you've seen in the last few months. He says when he started as CIA director, this has been a goal for a long time to create a united opposition. Now, that's obviously a sensitive comment because, as you know, American intervention in Latin America is not widely viewed as a positive thing in large parts of the continent. And him referencing the CIA suggests that there's behind-the-scenes influence in trying to prop up the opposition, which in many ways is the line that uh, Maduro has been using, trying to scapegoat the United States and scapegoat the West as just looking to oust him in an undemocratic way. So what was your reaction when you heard these comments from Pompeo? It was sort of like hitting the jackpot from the perspective of someone who's trying to get transparency and a better understanding of what U.S. policy is towards Venezuela. This was a rare opportunity to get the secretary's perspective on this and a perspective that we haven't heard publicly. Cubans are at the heart of the economic woes. And frankly, if you're worried about religious freedom also at the greatest risk of continuing to be religiously intolerant, that we've got to find a way to disconnect them from Venezuela. We are, we are working, it's very quiet work, we're working on sale off to try and deliver that. There are many. And then Pompeo starts to talk about the Trump administration's plan for the Middle East, which we haven't heard a lot about yet. But currently, what is the administration planning to do? Well, Unlike previous secretaries of state, Pompeo is not leading the crafting of this Middle East planet. It's actually being crafted by President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his former lawyer, Jason Greenblatt. So they've been hashing out this plan over several months. It's been sort of kept in the dark for a long time, and everybody's been waiting for what the reveal is. Palestinians have been kind of skeptical, to say the least, 
that it's going to be a workable plan, largely because the administration has been so allied and so in lockstep with the Netanyahu government. And it really seems like President Trump thinks that this could be one of the big foreign policy successes of his presidency. Yeah. I mean, he has from day one on the campaign trail talked about his ability through the sheer force of his personality to solve the Gordian knot that is Middle East politics. And he has long said that he is the one that can deliver this deal. Um, That type of soaring rhetoric, to put it lightly, has not been reflected in Pompeo's remarks. Yeah. What did he say about this behind the scenes? He says that one might argue this deal is unexecutable. Uh, Unexecutable. Unexecutable. Uh, He says it might not gain traction. He says he can understand why people think this is a deal that only the Israelis could love. I, I have seen what I believe are all the details of what it is we're going to roll out. Uh, the timing is still a little bit in flux, but I, I think you'll I think we're we're upon it. You'll see uh, what I, I think any fair person would describe as a very detailed, one might argue, unexecutable, because no, no no one no one uh, no one believes that this will be easy. Mr. Christian, Mr. Black, President Trump, myself, none of us believe this will be, easy, but a very detailed economic outline of what what success might look like in the entire region, the West Bank, Gaza. I get why people think this is going to be a a deal that only the Israelis could love. I I understand the perception of that. Uh, I I hope everyone will just give the space to listen and let it settle in a little bit and see if, in fact, we, we have struck the right place. Wow. And what was your reaction when you heard that? I thought it was incredibly candid. I was surprised that he was able to give that such an honest assessment of the situation. He says that he doesn't believe that it is biased in the favor of Israel, but he is acknowledging that that is a widespread perception. But if Secretary Pompeo thinks that this plan that is being hatched by Jared Kushner to establish peace in the Middle East, that it is, quote, unexecutable. Like, he's the Secretary of State. Why isn't he doing anything about it or saying that we have to do something different or that this plan won't work, we have to go in a different direction? So when this story came out, it really made big waves. And Pompeo reacted to it by saying, Yes, he said one might argue it's unexecutable, but he doesn't believe that it's unexecutable. He was just speaking to the criticisms that are out there. Hmm. But from what you heard, did this recording suggest to you that there is more skepticism within the administration than is led on publicly? Absolutely. I mean, he talked about the contingency planning that the administration is doing in the event that the deal doesn't gain traction, he said. He said, I don't want to use the word fail, but let's say hasn't gained traction. And he has said that they've even planned and considered what might happen if the deal falls flat and then the Israelis make moves to annex parts of the West Bank, a move that many people believe would be the final death knell of the two-state solution. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I told this gentleman when I showed up, I wouldn't answer every question. <laughs> 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 and I, I just assumed. So all, all, I, all I'll say about that is we've given it a great deal of thought. Uh, you, you should know, too, in this vein, we've given uh, quite a bit of consideration at the State Department to what happens when uh, the plan doesn't gain traction. I don't want to talk about it failing. 
call it whatever. I'm not, I fail a lot, so it's not about not using a word like that. But but in the event it doesn't gain traction, it, it, it appears that there's there's no good place. What are the other things that we might do to continue to, to uh, make it more likely? What are the things that would really end any possibility of thought to that, and we have uh, a list of things that are making their way through that I think there's now consensus on, on on how we should proceed with those events as well. One of them addresses what if we roll out the plan, it doesn't make much progress, and the city is made to annex certain locations. Uh, how would we respond? Well, what, what would be the best way to achieve outcomes that we think are in American Israel's best interest? So that's a really big climb down from rhetoric that we heard from the president about the ultimate deal that has long eluded so many previous presidents throughout American history. So having listened to all this tape, what do you think that Pompeo's comments in this private room, what they say about the administration and about the realities of their foreign policy agenda? Well, what's unique about this is Secretary Pompeo has been famous for being the most disciplined messenger of this administration and being famous for being in sync with the president. That's been the key to his survival in this administration that has gone through unprecedented upheaval and turnaround with various national security advisors and ousted secretary of state, ousted chiefs of staff. What we're hearing from him is really unvarnished assessments about the likelihood of really key objectives of the administration. And we're hearing for the first time that he's skeptical of this. What does it say that the person, the top diplomat in the country, the person who in theory should be most confident in the plan of action that the administration has for these for these complicated foreign policy issues, what does it say that he in private is expressing skepticism about them? Well, his supporters would say that he is just acknowledging reality of what's going on on the ground. Others have said it's interesting the issues that he weighed in on this meeting. In both cases, he is talking about an issue where the White House has had a, some might say, disproportionate role in these policies, giving him the sort of vantage point to step back and, and look at this in a, a, a sort of candid way. What's new is that we never really got that candid view until we obtained this audio. We're under no illusions about we're going to show up with this thing and everybody's going to say, tell me where to go for the signing ceremony. It doesn't work that way. We hope that there's enough vision here, enough space, that lots of countries will see this as a, an opportunity to re-engage in this process. Beyond that... John Hudson covers national security for The Post. So we have this chocolate. This is milk chocolate M&M's. Hershey's, a big bar of Hershey's. It's giant mm -hmm. on it. Godiva dark chocolate bunny. What can you tell me about this chocolate? Well, we there's Mars makes it and Hershey's makes it and Godiva makes it. And 
none of those companies can guarantee to us that there's no child labor involved in their, the cocoa that, that produce those chocolates. Peter Waraski is a business reporter at The Post, and he's been investigating the origin of much of the world's chocolate. That took him to Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast of West Africa. And that's where he saw firsthand the real cost of cocoa. Every chocolate bar has cocoa in it. 70% of the cocoa comes from West Africa, which people have known for a long time has had a child labor problem. There were 2 million child laborers uh, found to be working in West Africa a few years back. And the chocolate companies have said, since 2001, they've been saying, we're doing what we can to eliminate this problem from our supply chain. So we went down and tried to see what was going on down there. Um, we just get out of the car by the side of the road. Uh, we stopped. We walked about 300 yards into the woods, and we saw trees cut down, um, new cocoa plants being planted in a group of uh, one, two, three, four, five uh, teenage kids um, from, we think, Burkina Faso. So when you got there, what did you do? You just went to a cocoa farm and was like, I want to talk to kids who are working here? <laughs> no, it's not that simple. Most Cocoa farms, they're small and they're carved out of the forest. The people, the farmers themselves are very poor. What we did was we talked to people who could point us in the right direction. And we knew that we could find the kind of child labor that's most common, poor families, and they don't have enough money to send their kids to school. And they have them out in the field or in the farm. That's very common. We were also very interested in kids from Burkina Faso and Mali who are come to Cote d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast and and work. And they work in, they get paid a little bit of money, like 85 cents a day, but they live in huts. They don't have treated water. They're teenage boys for the most part. They're 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old boys. They're they have a little bit of pluck to them, and they just want to make money. Uh, they didn't have any money when they came from Burkina Faso. On, on the other hand, there are some that, to me, struck me as fairly traumatized. There's something so somber about some of them. And there was one kid with a Spider-Man hat who just seemed incredibly sad. And especially when I asked about his parents, he just hadn't seen them in a while and he'd like to see them. So for a kid growing up poor in Burkina Faso, how would a kid like that end up on a cocoa farm in Ivory Coast? They're traffickers, basically, who will offer a kid a bicycle or offer a kid's parent some money. Sometimes they offer education. And the people up in Burkina Faso and Mali are desperate. 
and they take the deal. And sometimes the kids tell the parents, sometimes they don't tell their parents, but they get on the bus. <laughs> Incredibly rickety buses piled high with goods on the top, and I was not able to get on, but our fixer was and took a, a little bit of video, and you do see young, young boys on the bus unaccompanied. So usually what we saw was that the trafficker, they call him the big boss, and the big boss would essentially rents the kids out to the farmer. But the farmer pays a fairly you know, decent amount to the to the big boss, and then the big boss will he's the one who gives out eighty five cents to each of the kids for a day, and he he has a camp out in the where the kids can stay uh, and, and handles things like that. Okay. You talked to one kid. His name was Abu. Can you tell me more about that conversation? Yeah, that was a really interesting day. Uh, we just were driving around and we'd heard that there was a place that we should stop. And I went up to the oldest one and asked him his name and his age. And he said he's 19. But as he tells me this, a 19 would have been obviously old enough to be working. He crouches down in the sand and he writes 15. Okay, he puts his hands up and shows he's 10 plus 5. Okay, 15. And then as he starts standing up, he flashes 15 fingers at him so that I'll know that he's actually 15 years old. But as he tells me this, he's looking over my shoulder nervously. And he's looking at the farmer, I realize. Uh, whoa, whoa. What is it? He's writing down um, how many years when he got here. Two thousand two zero one four. Okay. Yeah, five years. He was only ten. A couple things became clear. One, he was afraid. And two, that it was going to be really hard to find child labor because everybody knows that you're supposed to lie to people when they ask. We are here with Mathieu Cassé. As it turns out, the farmer didn't care. He's a farmer where Abu and the other boys from Burkina are working, and we're going to ask him some questions. In fact, afterward, I asked the farmer about how much he was paying and the situation of the kids and the buses coming in from Burkina Faso. And then I kind of asked him... Is it too much to ask him if it, this is like slavery or no? Isn't this kind of like slavery? He goes, oh yeah, it is like slavery. But I need the help. From the farmer's perspective, the pay that they get for cocoa is so low. It's so hard to make a living. I wouldn't want to be sympathetic to someone employing child labor, but uh, you understand why, you know, how they get to there, get, that, get to where they are. That they say that the only way that they can continue to survive as cocoa farmers is by employing these kids. I think it's an. I don't think it's the only way, but I would say that. It, Become something you consider, I guess. Hmm. 
So how is this cocoa still ending up in chocolate all over the world? Well, the chocolate makers don't know where a lot of their cocoa comes from. Why don't they know? Well, they buy it from so many middlemen. Uh, it, it, it goes from the farmer, then it'll go to a co-op, and then it might be bought by one guy and then another guy, and then it'll go to somebody in the capital city of Abidjan, and then it'll go to Europe or to the United States. So the push and the, the industry is very slowly moving there. Some companies are moving faster than others, is to have full traceability of their cocoa supply chain. Even within the cocoa that they do know where it comes from, though, they have problems, which they've tried to address either through the certification by groups like Fair Trade and Ray Force Alliance. Problem, it doesn't, having a certification from Fair Trade or Rainforest Alliance doesn't mean it's actually free of child labor. Is there anything that Congress or the federal government can do to try to force them to take more serious steps on this? Yes. They, and in fact, they tried to do that in 2001 when they said, we're going to have the FDA determine whether or not child slaves have been involved in this cocoa or, or this chocolate. We spoke with Representative Engel, who made the big proposal in 2001 that was uh, passed by the House and then didn't get to the Senate. I'm, I'm just someone that would like to uh, point out to them problems and hope that they'll ameliorate them. That's, you know, not my role to do it. He thinks that the industry has made some strides and isn't all the way there and suggested that some more pressure could be brought to bear on them. My role is to help anywhere I can. But I can't tell the governments what to do, nor can I tell the industry what to do. But I think that if we find that, that things are slipping backwards, then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pressure them and go public again and just do what we can do. So we know that there is a demand for ethical chocolate. But why isn't, it, why isn't that enough to change the way that all of these big chocolate companies are sourcing their cocoa? There's definitely a demand for, for chocolate that doesn't have these ethical complications for people. That's what's fueled demand for fair trade chocolate, for Rainforest Alliance chocolate, and some of these others. A couple of things about that demand, though. It's not that strong. About half of the cocoa that's produced as fair trade goes unpurchased. So a lot of these farmers, they go to the trouble of meeting those guidelines, and then they it doesn't sell. People just don't buy it? It's just not enough enough of a demand uh, for it, yeah. And and it costs more. I mean, fair trade, seeing the problem of farmer poverty pays a substantial premium. That little increment is too much for the companies that uh, buy cocoa. So it seems like it's really, in some ways, the power is in the hands of consumers who could demand more ethical chocolate, but don't. Right, they could. And there are a couple of niche companies that do things like they only source from countries other than those in West Africa that have this problem. That's one way. The other way is to do it with these labels, which, as I've mentioned, don't really guarantee that it's free of child labor. Peter Waraski is a business reporter at The Post. Rachel Siegel also contributed reporting to this project. You can see photos of the West African cocoa operations taken by post photographer Salwin George at postreports.com. 
Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. Listen to the story of the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of Donald Trump to President of the United States. Download and listen today. And now, one more thing. Sexism against female lab animals. It seems crazy to be talking about sexism when you're talking about mice. But it really struck a chord with me that it paralleled a lot of implicit bias that we see in society against women. So last week, Rebecca Shansky, who's a neuroscientist at Northeastern University, published this perspective piece in the journal Science talking about the problem of female lab rats or really more accurately, the lack of female lab rats. This is science reporter Sarah Kaplan. Most basic biomedical research that happens on animal models for decades has mostly happened on male animal models. And Dr. Shansky was trying to figure out why. She sort of argues that it stems from this kind of sexist notion that women are really complicated because we have estrus cycles and we have hormones. And even though men also have hormones, somehow in women, they become like this really complicating factor for scientists. The most dangerous kind of knowledge is a little bit of knowledge. So in the 1920s, scientists realized that the lab rats they were studying had an estrus cycle, like a woman's menstrual cycle. They knew that that meant that one day hormone levels would be high and one day hormone levels would be low. And so they just assumed that that meant that your data that you collect from females was going to be really messy. You know, science is so much about controlling for all factors except for the one you want to understand. And so this was a factor that they couldn't control. And they're like, we can't control this, so we're just going to not include females. There are real human consequences for this disparity. There is evidence that medicine doesn't work as well for women as it does for men. Famously, a few years ago, the FDA had to intervene and cut the recommended dose of Ambien in half for women because women were experiencing really dramatic side effects. We don't understand the symptoms of heart attack as well in women as they are understood in men. Women experience worse outcomes from strokes. And, you know, you look at the animal models and cardiovascular disease is still studied predominantly in male rats. I mean, it just it says a lot about the kind of assumptions that the people who are doing science make, right? The assumption that you can take the male as the default. We're scientists and we want to um, consider ourselves to be objective and unbiased. But I, I think that, that there is some bias that needs to be brought to light a little bit. I try to put myself in the shoes of these scientists who were making these decisions decades ago to only study males. And their assumption was really that, like, because females experience these variable hormones, it's too complicated, it's probably going to mess with their result. Therefore, like, let's not worry about it. If you do think the estrus cycle is going to affect your results, like, shouldn't you want to know? Isn't that what science is about? At some point, presumably, a woman who is on her period is going to have to take the medication you're trying to produce. And we should all want to know that it's still going to work for her. Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter for The Post.
That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.